Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. The holidays are here, which means getting together with family and friends. While that might sound like a wonderful time of the year, this time of the year is also extremely stressful. So often those get-togethers turn to politics, and why wouldn't they? With high inflation, multiple tragedies, and the midterm election, it's hard to escape talking about politics altogether. Right before Thanksgiving, though, polling showed that approximately 65% of the public didn't want to talk about politics at all on Thanksgiving. Now, whether people were able to steer clear of that topic or not is anybody's guess. We need to do another survey on that. But other holidays are upon us, and while we might want to not talk about politics at the dinner table, how can we start to bridge any partisan divides that have developed within our families and our friends? To chat about how we can really all engage in civil discourse, I've invited Chris Gates to the show. Chris is the director of the Philanthropy Bridging Divides, a national transpartisan effort to explore how philanthropy can help bridge ideological divides in America. He is also a lecturer at Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative and an elected fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. Gates also speaks and teaches around the country on topics of leadership, civic engagement, philanthropic practice, and democratic renewal. Gates previously led three national organizations. He served as president of the Sunlight Foundation, executive director of Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement, and president of the National Civic League, America's oldest good government organization. Chris also serves on the board of directors of Public Agenda and Open Secrets and the National Advisory Board of the National Civic League. So, Chris, thanks for being on the show. I'm happy to be here. So, according to new polls by the New York Times and by Pew, approximately one-fifth of Americans say that political disagreements have hurt their relationships with their friends and their family, and some, about half, have stopped talking about politics with somebody because of something they've said in person or online. So I I think I want to start our conversation today with really what the heck happened? What has contributed to us being more divided now than we've, we've really ever been? Well, uh, so there are a couple of different answers to that question. One is the reason it happened is pretty clear and it's uh, cable uh, television and social media. And uh, cable television told people that the way to talk about politics was to yell at the other side and to attack the other side. And that became sort of the norm. And then social media, Twitter, by far the worst, became a place for people to just sort of flame each other very quickly. And so we know why it happened. Unfortunately, there are no, not no, but few voices out there to sort of tamp things down and to say, you can have a conversation and you don't have to agree. Uh, you can have different points of view, but as long as you understand each other and appreciate each other, then it's it's not going to be as conflictual as it could be. And I think that, you know, I just had Thanksgiving with my in-laws and politics came up a little bit and there were Republicans and Democrats at the table and but everybody was respectful of each other and 
they were like, oh, that's interesting. And uh, that's a interesting point of view, but it was, there was no, there was no hate there. There was no uh, vitriol there. And I think that the current environment driven by cable news and social media has encouraged people to think that that's how you talk about politics. And that's not the world that I grew up with in politics. It was never, I, you know, I was for a long time, very active in the Democratic Party, no, no longer. But I had friends, absolutely public friends in the Republican Party, and I got criticized for it. Like, why would you have been seen talking to that person? Why would you have had a conversation with that person? And I was like, because they're not evil. We just have a different point of view at a different perspective. And I, and I think in the end that, so I believe in the two-party system. I think we need both parties. And I think that, and I don't mean this in any way, shape, or form to be a partisan statement at all, but I, I think that that Donald Trump and his brand of political discourse has done huge damage to our country. And I'm so happy to see Susan Collins and uh, uh, Mitt Romney and uh, Lisa Murkowski and reasonable Republicans step back in and try and take their party back over because, you know, I mean, Trump said, I think yesterday that the constitution doesn't matter anymore. And that the constitution, you know, like, I don't know a single Republican who believes in that. And so this is not about Democrats versus Republicans at all, because uh, I think we need a two-party system, but it is about the fact that, that Trump, I think, sort of injected a kind of conversation in our country that has not served us well at all. And I, I hope and pray that we can move past that. And the evidence that we've seen over the last, I don't know, week, 10 days of Republicans saying, you know, this is not who we are. This is not our party. I hope that continues. So you mentioned Trump in 2016 and the discourse that has come from him and from um, his supporters. Do you think though that he, well, I don't know, did, did the, the division really didn't start with him though, right? It was, we could go back in time. Did he just exacerbate it? How would you describe kind of when this began? So I think it's really important to differentiate between Trump, who I think it is fair to say has been really bad for our country, and the people who vote for him. And I think the mistake that my friends on the Democratic side of the aisle make is condemning them both simultaneously. And it's a huge mistake because what Trump did was tap into the vein of, of a part of America that Democrats had not taken seriously. And I'm a Democrat and, and you know, uh, you know I, I tell people I'm a raging centrist, but there's a chunk of our country who feels unheard, ignored. They're in flyover country. They think the elites think that they're stupid. And Trump was the first person in politics to tap into that and take that and run with that. And so I think, I, I, again, I used to be involved in politics and I always said that there's, there's an art to politics. Politics is an art. And the art of this moment is to find a way to simultaneously say to Trump, like this stuff about ignoring the constitution and like, you can't do that, but you have to do that simultaneously 
while recognizing the anxiety that a lot of people feel about their country and their place in the country and their government. You know, I, the, the, the great question to ask at a cocktail party is, what percentage of voters in the last presidential election were white? And Democrats say, oh, 30%, 40%. It's actually 74%. So if your goal is to drive the vote amongst communities of color and angry young people, you're never going to win. You just won't win. It's, it's why Republicans now control the House and why the Senate is going to be 50-50. Because in the end, we have to reach out to this huge part of the country who feels unlistened to, disaffected, you know, uh, insulted at a certain degree. Um, and we've got to find a way to hear them and include them in the conversation. And they feel like the elites have written them off. And I think that's a huge problem. Yeah, I think that the comments like basket full of deplorables didn't help that. Nope, exactly. Exactly yeah. right. So you mentioned that the media has a large role to play in this, social media. What about newspapers and local television? Do you feel like, I don't know, there's been a death of newspapers, a slow death of newspapers, a slow, I mean, we now have areas of the country that are media deserts. Are those things contributing to polarization? So uh, uh, what? I'm not sure what you're referring to. What are these things that you call newspapers because <laughs> we, don't, we don't see that much anymore and yes so if you if you don't have a local paper that has a local uh, perspective and point of view you get your news from friggin fox and msnbc and yeah it's a huge issue um the the demise of local media has been a huge problem and even where local newspapers survive, and I use that word cautiously, you know, I'm, I'm from Denver, Colorado, and the one paper left is owned by a hedge fund who has fired almost all the staff. And so they don't, they view it as an asset as opposed to a community service. No, I, I think that the demise of local media has been a huge problem. And so if you don't get your media locally, and you get it on MSNBC or Fox, it radicalizes both sides. And as James Carville once uh, told me, he said, people make a huge mistake in thinking that, that, uh, that talk radio and cable TV persuade people. He said, it's where people go to remind themselves why they believe what they believe. And so it's reinforcing. And so when people complain and say, oh, this is changing people's mind. It changes no one's mind. It, it's actually the place to go where you can feel comforted and say, oh, I'm right, I, I'm right. And so like in, in my world, because I work in a transpartisan space, I rotate um, all the time. I listen to Fox, I listen to MSC, MSNBC, I listen to CNN, I, I read the Wall Street Journal, I read the New York Times. I, I do all of that because it's really important to understand why other people think the way they think. And when you can understand why they think that, it makes it harder to hate them and easier to say, oh, I got it. So you feel that way because that, you know, right, that's what you think or that's what you've heard. 
And, you know, anything that we can do to depersonalize this moment, I think is, is really important. So a lot of what we have been talking about reminds me of a book um, that I assign in my political attitudes and behavior class, Culture War by Morris Fiorina. And in it, um, Fiorina discusses, and now this book is a, is a little old, uh, it does need to be updated, but talks about how everyone believes that we're in a culture war. Why do they believe it? And one of the key things that um, Fiorina points out is the media but then also that our choices themselves are pretty polarizing, that the individuals who are running for office are polarizing and that their elections might have something to do with this. What do you think about an argument like that, that the individuals running, of course, you've mentioned Trump, but then we could perhaps even go deeper than that and looking at some of the other individuals who run or even their elections. Are elections leading to this? Uh, the way elections work, are leading to this. And so both sides have weaponized money and they view success as tearing down the other side. And so like, I, I so feel sorry for people who live in Georgia right now that they have to, that they've got, you know, another, whatever, I guess it's another day of this stupid campaign. And, and both sides have weaponized the media to convince people that the other side is evil. And the truth is Herschel Walker is, I, you know, probably not qualified to be in the US Senate, but Warnock has got a bunch of warts as well. And, and it's, it's, a, it's not a great choice, which is why the race is 50-50. Unfortunately, in our political system, we dump money into negative ads and negative campaigns because we think that's what works. And if you look at the data, what we know is that negative advertising and negative campaigns actually reduce turnout. Um, it makes people just say a pox on both your houses. You know, I, I can't decide which evil I want to embrace here. And so I'm going to walk away. And, uh, you know, I always remind people of Lincoln's famous statement about, you know, we have a better angel on one of our shoulders and we need to appeal to the better angel. Um, too much of politics is about appealing to the other side, the devil on the other shoulder, which is to say that the other side is evil and disgusting and terrible. And, and we, don't, we don't spend enough time saying, what are the values that we share? How can we come together? And I would love to see more people in politics appeal to the better angel on our shoulder I think people want that. You know, I, I travel a lot and I speak a lot and I teach a lot. And I'm struck by the fact that people, I don't know anybody who likes this moment, who likes this level of hatred and vitriol and you and me and us and them. I truly believe, and I'm probably incredibly naive when I say this, but I think there's room out there for somebody to say, how can we come together? I've spoken to very divided groups uh, on the left and the right, and you can sense it in the room. So one of the ways that I start those conversations is I ask people to hold up their hands when I say something they agree with. And I say, so who in this room wants more crime? Any, anybody? Uh, who in this room thinks that there's not enough litter in America that we need more litter? Hold your hand up. 
who thinks that schools are just not good enough and they should be worse? Hold, hold up your hand. And literally, people look around the room of people that they know that they disagree with, and they realize that in the end, we want good schools. We want jobs for our kids. We, we don't want litter. We don't want traffic. We don't want crime. You know, that there's a bunch that we agree on. My whole theory about life is that if you figure out that you agree, you have shared values, you agree with somebody about 60% of things like crime, jobs, traffic, you know, litter, schools, like whatever. Then when you disagree about the other things, then you're like, well, I'm disagreeing with somebody who I agree with most of the time. And so it's a different kind of disagreement. And so I, I just think that there's, that we need to recognize that, that the people that we quote unquote disagree with are actually people that we agree with more than we would think. And if you can recognize that, then our level of sort of confrontation will get toned down because you fight in a different way. And this goes back, this loops back to your opening question about the dinner table. You fight in a different way with a family member who you know you agree with about a bunch of stuff than you do with somebody who you think, oh, that's a terrible, evil, you know, Democrat or Republican or, or whatever. But if, if you know that you both like value family and you value friends and that you love your nieces and nephews, it's a different conversation. So for those who are just tuning in and have been listening and wondering, who is Heather talking to today? Hi, everybody. This is Red, White, and Confused. I'm Heather Evans, your host. I've been chatting with Chris Gates, who is the director of the Philanthropy Bridging Divides, a national transpartisan effort to explore how philanthropy can help bridge ideological divides in America. So Chris, I want to talk about that now. I want to talk about your work. So I'm going to be honest. I feel like these dinner table conversations are actually really good. I tell students like, actually, you should talk about politics. Like, why not? Like, get to know your family a little bit. Listen to them. It's, but I think there's a there's but a if, way if, to do it. As long it. as they do it in a like, you have to do it in a non-confrontational, respectful. Like, I would like to hear what you had to say. I know that you and I disagree, but I would love to understand better about where coming from. How, right, exactly. Yes. So, um, I know that you've been doing work on bridging divides and. Full disclosure, I met Chris at a Lee Virginia event recently that was called Conversations with Leaders. And Chris, you talked a little bit about people who want to be bridgers and that there's some people who are manipulative bridgers. Could you talk a little bit about number one, what is bridging divides? And then number two, what about these manipulative bridgers? Like who are these people and how can we not be those people? So bridging divides is one of those phrases that just like feels good to say and feels good to hear. Like I want to bridge divides, you know, it's like awesome. Um, but it's it's really hard to do. And so I've, I've written about the fact that there are different categories of people. So there, there are people who literally don't believe in bridging divides, which is a fair perspective, but they believe that the bridging divides is giving the evil on the other side, whatever side you're on, a free pass to be evil. And so there are a lot of people who, who literally don't believe in bridging divides in America. They say the other side is wrong and they're evil and they're bad people. And so that's one category. The other is manipulative bridgers who, who, who basically they manipulate people's 
goodwill. They basically sort of invite you into a conversation and say, no, 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 we're going to, it's all going to be okay. We're going to work together. And then, and honestly, this happens far more on the left and the, the right, but the left will try to drag the right into a conversation. And then they get convinced to come in because they think it's a bridging conversation. And then at some point pretty quickly, they get told that you understand how dumb you are, right? You understand how wrong you are, right? And so it's why a lot of people on the center right are reluctant to join bridging conversations uh, because they feel they feel like they get used or abused. I don't know what the right word would be, uh, but actual bridging work is is really hard. It takes a lot of time, and and the key to honest, legitimate um, bridging work is that you recognize that the goal is not to get people to agree. True bridging work is about, about people better understanding a different perspective and a point of view. And if, if, if that understanding leads to that wonderful aha moment where somebody says, oh, you know what? You and I actually agree on this. Like, oh, that's awesome, right? But that's rare. It doesn't happen that much. But true bridging work is about me being able to sit down with somebody who has a totally, an example from my work is that one of my colleagues published something that was very critical of critical race theory. And there were other people in the group on the left who said, oh, she's terrible. She's a terrible human being. And how could you say that? And what we were able to do is we, we created some safe space, some safe, civic, reasonable space on Zoom, unfortunately, where we could have a conversation about it. And in the end, I don't think she changed anybody's mind, right? The people who still believed in critical race theory and thought it should be taught and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of this hour, people were like, I, I gotcha. I, I, I understand why you feel how you feel. And that just tamps all of the anger down, you know, it, and, and so it becomes less of a, I hate you <laughs> and more of a, I disagree with you. And I, I think in my talk with Lee Virginia, I mentioned that, that polling has shown that, that people have shifted from thinking that people with different opinions have different points of view to people with different opinions want to destroy the country. And, and the numbers are totally, it's not, that's not a partisan statement. It's the same on Republican and Democratic side, um, that now people think that those who disagree with them want to hurt the country. And it, it didn't used to be that way. And I hate to be a nostalgist, but it just didn't used to be that way. We used to be able to say, got it. Like we, we disagree. Cool. And now it's like, you are an evil person who wants to destroy our country. <laughs> and it's just it, terrible. Yeah. And I've had scholars on who do work as well on not only is it like this attitude that you're just, you're wanting to destroy democracy or wanting to destroy the country, but even the acceptance of political violence, right. that the division is creating those sort of like an increase in those attitudes too, that political violence is okay. And well, so the, I will, I will tell you that, that the trap there is that when the elites, the coastal elites, 
and I, I say that very specifically, when the coastal elites shoo their hands at those people, um, they fuel that fire. Um, and January 6th was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing for our country. And I'm glad that so many people are going to go to jail for what they did. And, you know, if they would have, God forbid, found Nancy Pelosi or Mike Pence, they would have literally killed them. Um, but I think if you take a step back, you have to understand, like, where did that anger come from? Like, that is, that's unbelievable that people are that angry that they're willing to do that much. And I always tell people that when you're, when you're mad at the world, the most important thing you can do is look in the mirror. And I think that, you know, you're a, you're a fancy pants college professor and, you know, and, and I went to, and I went to Harvard. And so, you know, we, we, we can all be, you know, like smart and all that kind of stuff, but you got to understand, like, there's a whole chunk of the country that are white working class, trying to make a living, trying to raise a family, scared to death about their future, scared to death about their kids' future. And those folks feel unheard. And until they're heard, we're going to have this level of stuff going on in our country. And there's a way to bleed the anger out of this. And it's by listening to people. And it's by letting people know that they're heard. And because otherwise, if I, you know, I'm sure you've read the same stuff I've read, but you know, a lot of folks felt like they had no choice, that no one heard them, that no one listened to them, that nobody cared about them. And, and people who don't feel heard or cared for or listened to will go to extremes. And so it, we, we can point our fingers and blame them all we want say, oh, terrible, ignorant, evil, dumb people. Or we can say, why did they feel that way? And what can we change about our society and our politics that would not make them feel that way? And I think, I, I, I think, I think uh, those of us working in the system uh, need to look in the mirror and, and not blame. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I, I know people who are like, oh, those ignorant, dumb, you know, Southern redneck, like, like really? Like, that's terrible. Like, that just, that's, that is not a recipe for making things better. Um, and I think we have to get over that and recognize that people feel the way they feel for a reason. And let's figure out what that reason is and what we can do to fix it. Yeah. How do we, how do we make it better? I was telling um, a guest from last week that I was driving around town and I saw a truck with a big bumper sticker that said, we, the people are pissed. And that, I mean, it's like, okay. I mean, I think that being pissed is somewhat healthy. So let, let, let's talk about what made you angry and then how we can make democracy better. Cause obviously people are not being heard. We're feeling like they're being heard. So how can, how can we change that? And maybe the holiday dinner discussions are one way to help people feel more heard, but do it in a respectful way. As long as, as long as there's a, uh, I'm a firm believer that if you're going to have that conversation, you need like, like a, a moderator or a mediator at the table. Somebody to say, okay, that was a good point. Now who, who here has a different perspective, but if it's a free for all, it tends to not go well, but 
if you're up for it, you should be that moderator at the table and say, I recognize that we had different points of view. And I know, Johnny, you feel a certain way. And I know, Sally, you feel a different way. And as long as there's a peacemaker at the table, I think it works. If it's a free-for-all, I think it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of, uh, so I do some deliberative dialogue work on campus where I'll invite everybody to yeah. a deliberative dialogue. We'll pose a question that's a very big question. And then everyone will get in small groups and they'll work on the question. And it's usually not partisan in nature. It's very much like, this is a deep, hard question. How can we come together? But at the end of the day, like you have Democrats and Republicans working together on solutions for these problems. And maybe those sorts of like somehow expanding that to the dinner table would be a good, good idea. Well, try, try, try my trick. And, 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 and say, you know, I know that people here think that they disagree with each other, but just, you know, tell me who at this dinner table thinks that our community needs more crime, who, at, who at this dinner table thinks that we need uh, uh, more litter, more traffic, worse schools, it literally, if you do it right, people will in the end sort of like chuckle and go like, yeah, you're right. We don't disagree about everything. And uh, we all want good things. And, you know, my, my Thanksgiving table was intergenerational um, and nobody wants bad things for their kids. You know, they want their kids to have a great future. They want them to have a great life. They want them to find a job. They want them to, you know, maybe controversial to say these days, but, but they want them to be able to buy a home. And, and I think once people realize that they, they can disagree without being disagreeable, that that it, it changes the tone and tenor of the conversation. Yeah, I do too. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show today. Absolutely. I appreciate it very much. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of this broadcast today, you can catch up anytime on podcast. You can find us Red, White, and Confused on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. This show comes on at six o'clock on Thursdays and one o'clock on Sundays on WEHC and also over at Wise FM and some of the surrounding stations. So I hope you enjoyed the broadcast today. If you liked it, like us on Facebook, share the show, and we will talk with you next time. Have a great week.